Job ready? Employer says yes. This programme is presented by Eduvate, education and innovation. I'm Jonathan Brill. In this week's show, we visit the education sector again and look at the plight of Learn Direct. We interview a successful young entrepreneur, Scott Dalgleish. And in the feature on artificial intelligence, we examine the views of the CEO of Deloitte that driverless cars and trucks don't mean mass unemployment, they mean new kinds of jobs. Education has been in the news during August, and some would argue that a very depressing picture is emerging, particularly for the 16 to 19 age group. Learn Direct is one of those presenting a depressing picture. It is the company which runs apprenticeships through colleges in the UK. It is inspected by Ofsted, the same organisation which inspects high schools. It's been given the lowest grade possible. Learn Direct tried to suppress the Ofsted report. There are allegations of serious mismanagement. So what do students think? Some students have defended Learn Direct, their ticket to university, for providing an opportunity that otherwise they wouldn't have had. But with fresh allegations that Learn Direct wound down their own standards, such viewpoints smack of self-gratification. In England, university students pay fees, quite substantial, though not as large as those in the US. A former advisor to the government called them a Ponzi scheme. According to this Mr Timothy, many school leavers are being forced to study expensive degrees that fund highly paid university bosses while leaving students in debt, possibly with as much as 50000 It's no surprise that take-up of places at university appear to have plateaued and possibly dropped. Universities are attacked again, this time by the government, for giving out too many first-class degrees. 40% in some universities are getting a first. The argument in a nutshell is that they are debasing the currency of having a degree, of having a high classification. And this lot together and the lot of the 16 to 18 year old and the choices they have to make, they're getting more and more difficult. One employer said, degree classifications are no longer a trusted barometer of performance. University is not for everyone. We need, this chap said, to stop sending students for third rate degrees and burdening them with an insurmountable debt, all for a bit of paper. He concludes... Young people deserve better. And so say all of us. I met up with Scott Dalgleish just outside Edinburgh Airport. I'm talking today with a young entrepreneur. I hope you won't mind me saying that. Scott Dalgleish. Scott, you are a young entrepreneur. What does the word entrepreneur mean to you? Um, I think it means risk-taking and being self-confident. It's not an easy thing to do, but if you don't believe in yourself, it's really difficult to get others to believe in you as well. So believing in yourself, willing to take risks are part of a personality. What sort of skills did you need 
to become an entrepreneur? I think, again, it's this, it's this self-belief that you think what you do is worth someone else's interest. So whether you have a service or a product, you believe in that service or product, and then you've got a passion to tell someone about that. So how did you become an entrepreneur? Did you wake up one morning and said, you know what, I'm going to be an entrepreneur? Since I was about 12, 13, I always wanted to run my own business. Um, I didn't know what that was going to be. I didn't know what it was going to entail. I just always had this idea that I want to run my own business. And then I went through school, and then I went through university, and I thought, a nice stable job with an income would be lovely. So I went down that route. Where was that job? I left university and went through a year's marketing and sales course with closers. Brilliant. A guy called Ian Swanson runs that. He's fantastic. And then I got a job at Difference Corporation. They do telecoms. Um, and lovely, lovely people. They were so embracing to me to come into an industry which I knew nothing about, but really wanted to help with. And I was with them for about six months. And that's when I really started getting this hunger to go out and try and do something on my own. Uh, I realized that my skills lay particularly in the digital side, but with my sales background, it meant that I could find out what people really wanted to achieve and do that for them or help them understand it. Tell me about the digital thing. Is that something you were taught or something you found out for yourself? Well, I'd always had an interest in it. Uh, I did a communications degree uh, in public relations, so a lot of it was to do with how you properly get your message across, and I realized that there's much easier ways to get information across than sending press releases or Word documents. Twitter was really, really big then. It slowed down a little bit, but it was it was a really good way for journalists to spread their words and their stories while they were there live. And I realized that using all this digital aspects, you can get information across. And then as I slowly moved into the professional environment, I met people who seemed to think certain things online were too difficult to do when I knew they weren't. So for example, someone said to me, I don't have a website because it's too difficult to make a website and I can't afford to pay someone to do it. Whereas there's lots of free templates just as a way to get your name there. And it's almost like having a shop window. If you don't have a shop window, people can't see what you do. So you have a website, people can see what you do. So I got really interested in it and looked around to see what other, you know, sort of software as a service businesses are there. So software as a service, SAS. That uh, yeah, of, yeah, yeah. Sort of, you know, like a, like a Wix Bits.com website builder or, you know, like an e-commerce store that's really easy to use. You just upload a spreadsheet. Um, And I realized that there's so many tools out there um, and I had a bit of coding experience and I thought we could change this and charm it up a little bit. And there's so many tools out there that people don't have the time or knowledge to use. So they might say... They just don't know where to start. Yeah, they don't know it exists, for example, or they they, they don't have the time to put aside to do it because you've got to learn it and... Coupling that with my sales experience, I knew how to understand what people really wanted to try and achieve. And then using an amalgamation of all these digital skills that I'd managed to attain to help achieve that. So um, six months into this job with telecoms industry, I thought I'm either going to wait and start it afresh or I'm just going to start it afresh. And I've weighed the benefits and I thought, why am I weighing the benefits? Let's just quit. Let's try it. Um, and I think that, again, it had that I'd managed to convince myself that I have something to offer. So I just went for it. Now, I would say that being a young person would be an advantage in that situation in the sense that you didn't have enormous baggage yeah. to have to support in terms of finance. Is that right? Yes, it's very, very correct. So I didn't have any dependents. I didn't have any 
you know, I, I had the flat that I rented. But other than that, there wasn't really any major expenditures. Um, one of the main benefits as well is that people are more likely to give you a chance because as I was 23 when I started, people would say, oh, he's just a young guy trying out. Um, and, I, and I found that quite a lot, that um, one of the main things I might mention later is that everybody wants to help you. If you say you're trying something, people will, people will offer you help in whichever way they can. So being young, I think, was an extra benefit to that because they thought, oh, he's a young lad just trying out. So I, had, I got a lot of um, benefits of the doubt for people bringing me on. So people I knew that I said, I'm trying this new digital business. Can I help with anything you're doing? They would have thought, he's just young and trying out. Let's give him a shot. Um, and what sort of help did they give you? So um, I always wanted advice from people. I wanted advice on through their experiences, what have they learned? And asking advice tends to mean that they then find out what it is you do through, oh, so for example, uh, I'm really interested in finding out how you manage to grow your business from one member of staff to five members of staff. And then they go through the process of how it works. And then they start to talk about the problems that they might have. And then you talk about how you think you could help. And they say, oh, either I'd love to do that or think, oh, you know what? You should speak to A or you should speak to B because they'd really appreciate that. They'd really need that help. And the other thing is they'll share the mistakes and experiences that they've gone through to try and help you prepare. Right. So they might say, oh, you sound like you're going for this. Don't do it. I tried it. Wasted two years of my life. That sort of thing. So, so people will always give you five minutes of their time just to help. And that help can guide you in the right direction. It's very encouraging. At one stage, you must have had a big decision to make. You must have thought, shall I go into business or shall I go to university? Do you know what? I'll go to university. Do you think that was the right decision? Yes. So I actually finished school and didn't want to go to university and didn't really have any guidance and didn't know what to do. So took a year in college, West Lothian, doing advertising and um, sort of fell in love with the trade and thought, I will go to university now. It's what I want to do. I'm really interested in this topic. I wouldn't necessarily say the educational experience is what pushed me to do what I'm doing now, but getting out there and being a bit more individual and meeting all these new people gives you confidence. So I moved out from home, lived in homes of residence with five other people I'd never met in my entire life and spent a year with them in really close quarters. So it gives you this added experience and this feeling of individuality and self-belief that, you know, I've gone out of nowhere in here and I've, you know, I've got to wait two weeks till my student loan comes in, so I'm going to struggle. But, you know, you've got this independence. So actually what you learned was less important than the maturation, the, the fact that you were maturing in and amongst people at your own space. Yeah, even, even the interactions with your lecturers, where your lecturer will say, Look, we're looking for this to be done, and you say, I'm really struggling, can you help me with all of it? I mean, they, they don't have the time to do that. And that's an experience of what happens in real life. If you've got a boss who asks you to do something that you need help with, they'll guide you, but they can't tell you how to do all of it. So you've got to go and learn yourself. Um, and one of the other things that happens in universities, you end up meeting people in the industry. And I think that can be really beneficial because you can hear what it's actually like in the industry. You might want to go and work in or... Um, something similar. So in communications, I met people would come in and do guest lectures from big public relations firms or uh, advertising agencies, and they'd tell you a little bit about how the industry actually works. And then meeting people like that and hearing from them gives you an understanding of how people actually operate in the real world. So before I went into sales, I thought everyone would be really cutthroat because that's what the movies and the TV shows are like. 
um, like Glengarry, Glen Ross, the film. It's just all about money, money, money. Everyone's horrible to each other. Whereas that's not the case. Everyone's, everyone's interested. Everyone will take their time and people are polite. And that's what I learned through meeting people in the real world and the real operating is an understanding of how people are going to actually act. Some people say coming out of university that the word sale is a four-letter word. You, you, you're not taught anything about how to make sales even in a business studies degree. Yeah, see, so it was that was something that was completely different um, from anything I'd ever learned. Uh, it's really difficult to, to be a salesperson because, first of all, people are scared by the word salesman and they'll go, oh, I don't want to buy anything from you. Oh, that, that sounds bad. Uh, and there seems to be an understanding that they're maybe not got your best intentions in mind. Um, and I think it's all about relationships with sales. So that's something I couldn't learn in business studies because you can't actually talk to people and build these relationships and this trust because everything's based on trust in, in business and in life. Uh, even if you sign a contract with someone, that contract might be legally binding, but that's all on the basis that you trust this person. So being a salesman is not something you can really learn in books. It's a lot of being burnt, <laughs> a lot of a lot of growing as you learn, should I say? Can you be taught how to be an entrepreneur if it's not there inside you? I think that's quite a a debatable question with lots of debatable answers. Personally, at the start of this, I said you need self belief and you need confidence to go out and do this, and yeah. there's, that's so difficult to attain yourself, and I'm very fortunate to have that. And it's 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 wavered as I've gone along my journey, and it grows as I continue to grow. But, <clears throat> pardon me, um, I think that teaching entrepreneurship isn't necessarily about how to be an entrepreneur, it's about letting people know they can be an entrepreneur. So doing an entrepreneurship course or listening to people who have done it themselves might not necessarily teach you how to be a successful one, but it can give you the belief that you can be one. Like if you look at the if stereotypically, you might think of someone who's quite sharply dressed, very confident in what they do and everyone really charismatic, but that's not Bill Gates. It's not really Mark Zuckerberg. But they've done very, very well in entrepreneurship because they really believed in what it was they were doing. And they had a lot of ambition as well. Um, but it's not necessarily this Elon Musk character of, of really sharp dress and really cool and really trendy. I think it's everyone's got something inside them that they're passionate about. And then it's about taking that risk. So in teaching entrepreneurship, it's about teaching people that that risk can be taken. And also all the the backup and the available funding or the available guidance. I mean, I wouldn't be where I am now if it wasn't for Business Gateway because right. they actually tell you how to write a business plan, how to register with HMRC, how to set up a business banking account. It's all there and ready. But that's something I wouldn't know about if I hadn't asked someone what to do. And Business Gateway is a public sector organisation working in Scotland, but they are all over the world, designed to give you the nuts and bolts, if you like, yeah. of entrepreneurs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And most, most governments, I know, especially in Europe and the US, will have somebody that's government appointed that's there to try and help businesses grow, because that means that they can grow employment in their area. So whether you happen to be in a small town in Nevada or you happen to be in London, there's somebody there that's meant to be helping business grow. So if you say, I'd like to start a business... They're there to help you because they want that business to grow and then employment to grow from that. So good news for you. If there's any luck in the world, you're going to live for a long time, you're going to be, live for a great age. Are you going to be an entrepreneur all that time or is the aim to retire by the time you're 36 and live the rest of the, your life in Bermuda? 
So I don't think I'll ever lose the passion to want to start something new. So I'm a year into my business now and it's it's really exciting and I, I sort of treasure every day of doing it. But I know I'm going to get to a stage where I'm no longer the leading person in this industry or I've grown tired of what I'm doing or I've found something else I'm passionate about. Um, or it could be the idea that it fails and I move on to something else. I take what I've learned and I do this. Um can I pitch myself working for a massive organization? I don't think so. Um, we spoke with, um, we were in Silicon Valley a few weeks ago in Facebook and we spoke to the person who runs Two Big Ears, which was a Scottish company that got bought by Facebook. Right. We said, how does it work? Such a really intuitive startup getting bought by such a multinational company. And he said, we just do the exact same thing. We just have to do it under the name Facebook. So the way that that organization runs is that they let them all run like startups, but working for a massive bank, I think I'd probably find myself out the door in a year. You wouldn't be the only one in that. Okay, so a young person is thinking about working with you and arranges to have a conversation with you. What's the worst thing they could do? Um, talk constantly. I think that asking questions is a really good way to get flowing conversation going. And it's a really good way for me as an employer to understand where your interests lie, where your passions are, what you're interested in, what you're good at, you know, how intuitive you are and how you can be beneficial to me. So I have done, I've done some interviews before, I've done hiring before. And if people ask me a question I don't know the answer to, I know they're on to something. Because I'm like, right, that's such a value because I didn't even know I wasn't thinking about that. So I think sometimes people come in and nervously chat through, I've, I've done this, here's my entire history. And I think that um, that's not necessarily the case. Um, I also would research into the role you're looking at and the business you're working with in their industry. Um, I know that when I, so when I graduated a communications degree and I looked at jobs in public relations firms, I did a couple of job interviews, but I just knew the industry from my experience at university. And I didn't necessarily know a lot about the companies I was interviewing with. And that already puts you a hindrance because they've got their own agenda and ambition of growth. And you're being brought into that team to help that growth. So it's really good to have an understanding of it. So always do your research for the companies you're going into. And if they wanted to impress you, what's the... Thank you now. Thing they could do. Yes, do the research. What's some other thing they could do to impress you? One thing I got very, very impressed by, by somebody who unfortunately got a much better job than I was offering, was they came in with um, a five-step plan to improvement. Now, there was obviously things I'd gone through, and I have my own 12-step plan, but the fact that they took a look at my business and went, here's five things I think I could help you with, and here's how we're going to do it, I thought, Jesus. Yeah. That guy's put more effort in than I have. They fully understood that they were being brought in to help a business grow and they'd looked at the market. So, um, and it's, it's also, it's quite bold to say, this is what I think you could do better, which I was very impressed by. And finally, do you think that Scotland is a good place to be an entrepreneur? I very much think so. Um, what I mentioned earlier, things like Business Gateway and local, local initiatives to help small businesses start. Scotland has nationwide so the EDGE Award, for example, are things that can make businesses and a lot of funding to push forward. 
There's, I mean, Entrepreneurial Scotland itself will help entrepreneurs and grow. And there's so many opportunities to come and meet others who've done the same. Um, so a lot of the government funding's there. Uh, lots of the international companies that are based in Edinburgh and Glasgow, Edinburgh specifically with Skyscanner recently selling to a Chinese consortium, the people who own lots of shares are investing in Edinburgh. They want to see Edinburgh grow. Things like Codebase, I've got over 100 companies in there now. So it's such an entrepreneurial little spot in Scotland and it's spreading spreading wide as well. Uh, I was seeing about people setting businesses in Kilmarnock because that's where their parents lived. So they've got a really, a really interesting sort of big data idea, but they're, doing, they're going to do it in Kilmarnock because that's where mum and dad live. Because it doesn't necessarily matter where you're based, but they've got this backing and they've got access to to all the government funding and stuff. And not to mention that you're an hour away from London, which is which is really beneficial for the rest of the world because London's got everybody all of, from all over the world based there. So not just the, the finance sector and all the money that's in London, you can meet people who are actually based in Dubai or Berlin or Munich. So it's really exciting. So yes, yeah, Scotland's definitely got a lot of bright future ahead of it. And you're working in with the US as well? Yeah, so I work with a couple of people in the US. Um, I work with somebody in Germany as well. And I work worked briefly with someone in Montrose and I'd never met the person in Montrose and I'd never met the person in Germany, but we met all together at an event in Portugal because it's just a connected world. So I think, don't don't think big about who you can work with rather than think who you can reach because I can get to Montrose in the train, but we just never needed to. It's a connected world. You've been listening to Scott Dalgleish with his myriad insights and a young person to boot. Scott, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. News this week that driverless trucks will be trialled shortly has sent tremors around the jobs industry. The transport industry has always battled to carry the maximum goods with the least person power. On the sea, a huge container ship can carry many times the load that a 19th century clipper could. You know, that ship with many masts and sailing things. That could carry a a crew of 80 to 100 men. A container ship can be as low as 11. So while it's no surprise that road transporters would seek to cut down on their person power in this way, the aspect of job loss is concerning many. But according to Cathy Engelberts, who's the CEO at Deloitte, driverless cars and trucks don't mean mass unemployment. They mean new kinds of jobs. Cathy notes that when we speak and write on this topic, the audience response is usually intense and ranges from excitement to deep anxiety. Her response to these fears is twofold. First, the details matter a lot. While every industry will likely be impacted, the nature of these impacts may vary considerably, as we at Eduate point out every week. Sweeping generalisations can invariably mislead and more than they reveal. Second, there's a need to confront the issues head-on. Putting your heads in the sand won't stop the inexorable advancement of technology, so an approach grounded in facts rather than sensationalism is critical. When the media cites professions that may decline because of automation, because of these pesky robots, some of the most common are jobs involving the movement of people and goods, trucking, lorry driving, taxis, ride-sharing and the like. 
These jobs are consequential both for their sheer numbers. Do you know that there are roughly 4 million professional drivers in the US? And that's excluding those who drive for Uber and other taxi services. Cathy states, the opportunities for full and part-time drivers has expanded and will likely continue to expand in the near term as ride-sharing has grown in the US and globally. The expanded labour pool is unlikely to endure, however, with the onset of driverless trucks. That leaves a big question. What future jobs can these people take on and what training and skills will they need? Well, new types of mobility for a start. We could easily imagine that the ageing population will need aids to travel with them to medical appointments, run errands, even if driving is not actually part of the job description. Travel and leisure, and that's likely to continue to grow. And in general, there will be likely to expanding markets around mobility of management services that could offer incremental job growth. There'll be new businesses that will digitally enable the planning and consumption of passenger and goods movement to be more efficient, enjoyable, productive, safer, cleaner, cheaper. That could mean everything from maintaining vehicle fleets to remote monitoring. The combination of mobility and smart cities, which we've also talked about in this podcast, can also provide broader benefits like increased access to healthcare, efficient energy, and so different jobs. Autonomous trucks will travel highways and motorways with a human monitor in the cab who can assist with particularly challenging driving like navigating city centres and ensuring goods are delivered safely. Since the vehicles can operate for much longer periods without stopping, fewer total drivers will be needed, but the support structure will grow. And so a balanced approach means acknowledging that, yes, rideshare drivers in urban areas are likely to go through job changes and job pressures. Long-haul lorry drivers and truckers, although likely later on down the line, that's going to happen to them, but more slowly. It also means appreciating that new, potentially higher-value jobs are also likely to emerge and that there can be society-wide benefits to these changes. The question is, will these new jobs be in sufficient numbers to make tomorrow's workers contributing members of society? Ultimately, we need to help today's future workforce and you, our listeners, drivers, factory workers, beyond all these people, to discover where the demand for skills will be in five to ten years and our job is to help you gain the necessary expertise and experience to do these jobs well. We already have a skills gap, we know that. We need to figure out how to digitise and skill those workers to match them with the demand for available jobs. There's collective dialogue that should be engaged now so we can create meaningful, fulfilling and productive opportunities for all. Cathy doesn't mention it, but we will. This dialogue must include the education sector. And here's a special offer. If you are a registered Eduvate user, and if you want to comment on any of the stories you've heard in our podcasts, or receive introductions to any or all of the people that we've interviewed, we'd be happy to help. You'll find us online at eduvate.biz.
Job ready. Employer says yes. 